We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host as always, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And we're joined again this week by Harrison. Hi there. This week, we're speaking with Dmitry Babich, who has been a journalist covering Russian politics for some 25 years. He is a graduate of Moscow State University and has previously been a correspondent at ORIA Novosti, he was the foreign editor at the Moscow News and editor-in-chief at Russia Profile magazine. Yeah, that's so true. That's all true. Well, I would just correct a little bit. Ria Novosti, this was uh, the official name of the news agency, you know, which Ria. stays uh, one of the main news agencies in Russia. Ria Novosti, yes. Ria Novosti. And this, of course, has become joined with the Voice of Russia, which you were also a broadcaster with, and yes. today is known as Sputnik International. Uh, the radio is called Sputnik International, and the holding, you know, the big company is called Russia Сегодня, which means Russia uh, today, Russia now. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dmitry, you probably recognize him. He was a, he is a frequent commentator on international TV news shows, not least on RT's Crosstalk, hosted by Peter Lavelle. So, Dmitry, joining us now on the line from Moscow. Hello, Dmitry. Hello, nice to hear from you. Likewise. Um, I'm just going to begin with something you wrote recently. It's an article, Western Finance Revolution Limited as the New Common Turn. You cited a Czech intelligence report accusing Russia of trying to create an entity in Europe, quote, drawing on the concept of the common turn, end quote. The accusation being that Russia today is engaged in the subversive overthrow of other countries' governments. You, sir, as a Russian citizen, you stand accused. How do you answer these charges? Confess. Well, I think it's just unbelievable uh, how you can accuse Russia of trying to topple other governments in Europe when we have just seen how the European Union and the United States openly supported uh, an armed coup in Kiev. You know, basically toppling uh, the president who might not be ideal, but uh, who was elected by the majority of the population at elections recognized by both the United States and the European Union. And he was certainly better than, uh, you know, the president of the government, which Ukraine has now. Uh, you know, these, uh, uh, this leadership has presided over the first civil war in the history of Ukraine you know, with uh, thousands of people killed. And and now we hear from the European Union accusations of Russia trying to destabilize other other governments and of using common term tactics. Well, uh, I mean, look at the publications, even in the official Western press, look at the publications in Der Spiegel magazine in Germany, for example. There was a big, big investigation uh, Ten years ago, right after the so-called Orange Revolution in Kiev, uh, which basically described uh, the uh, you know the recipe, 
the tactics of organizing revolutions in the countries, in the regimes which the EU or the United States don't like. And this is exactly the Comintern tactics. I would call this new Comintern uh, the Neocomintern, because it is basically spreading the ideology of uh, neoconservatives or neocons in today's world by the methods of uh, the Soviet Comintern from the early 20s. And if you look at the logic uh, of, uh, you know, logic of the actions of the U.S. government and of the European Union right now, you might be surprised. I mean, look, uh, both the United States and Britain acknowledge that the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a mistake. They show, uh, you know, the, the terrible statistics, at least 4,000 U.S. military killed. Was anyone, uh, okay, not even put in prison, but was anyone fired? Was anyone demoted? No. Uh, how can you explain this? I mean, if you think that this is all for the national interest of the United States, then someone should have been fired because Obviously, it's not in the interest of the United States to lose 4,000 people. Uh, the only logic why I think uh, you can explain what happened is that uh, the United States and the European Union, uh, the leadership of these entities right now, they follow the same logic as the early Soviet Comintern. Uh, that, that logic is, you know, you should start revolutions wherever you can. You should invade the countries which resist our revolutions. If you fail, it's not a big problem. You will succeed the next time. Let me remind you that in 1920, when the, uh, you know, the early Soviet army tried to go to Germany to help the revolution there, you know, that Soviet army was defeated in Poland. And basically, it was a huge blow to the national interest of the Soviet Russia. The Soviet Union did not yet exist, but the Soviet Russia already existed. And, ironically, Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin, who were, you know, the two masterminds of that attack against Poland, none of them was brought to justice. Why? Because, uh, according to the logic of Comintern, they would have been criminals if they didn't try to spread the revolution to Germany and Poland. Okay, they tried, they failed, fine, uh, we're not going to punish them. That was the logic of Comintern. The same logic I see now applied to the people who masterminded the American and the British invasion uh, of Iraq in 2003. Okay, Mr. Bush, the junior, you tried, you failed. Uh, too bad, but uh, you're not a criminal. And certainly the people who helped you, Mr. Rumsfeld, uh, you know, Mr. Pearl, they're not criminals either because they would have been criminals if they didn't try to topple, uh, you know, the government in Iraq. So this is the unfortunate uh, situation that uh, we have now. I understand that my voice is a minority voice, but uh, I see these disturbing parallels, and I think uh, you know more people should see them. Indeed, it's astonishing on so many levels how what could be said about early Soviet Russia can now be said about U.S., but also in general Western practices today. It's almost as if the psychology or if indeed an ideology, the logic behind the driving forces of the early Soviet Union have been transferred westwards. You are right uh, with uh, just one uh, correction. You know, the rhetoric on the surface is different. You know, the Soviet Union talked yeah. about 
high ideals about, uh, you know, uh, socialism, about helping the poor, you know, giving the opportunities to the young people. Uh, so, uh, on the surface, you know, the, the new masters of the world, they claim that they're going to spread democracy, uh, equal rights to vote, uh, you know, uh, civil society, a fight with corruption, but the methods are the same. And unfortunately, the philosophy is the same. You know, as Lenin once said, everything that serves the cause of the revolution is moral. Everything that is against the revolution, even if uh, this is done by some very good people, this is immoral. So it's just amazing that, uh, you know, the U.S. government and the EU, uh, they raise issues with Russia. You know, why did you put Mr. Khodorkovsky in jail, someone who became the richest person in Russia of the 90s? And, uh, you know, everyone in Russia understands that <laughs> you, you had to be a criminal to become the richest Russian in the 90s. Yeah. So the, the issue with him is raised, but the issue of Mr. Poroshenko being the president of a country uh, in raptures of civil war, a country where at least 8,000 people have been killed, this issue is not even raised, you know. Uh, Mr. Poroshenko is given standing ovations when he when he visits Canada or the United States or the European Union countries, he was given standing ovations right at the moment when thousands of people were dying under the bombs in, in, in Donetsk and hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers were dying encircled uh, uh, in these so-called rebel republics. Uh, ju just let me give you an example of how this logic works. You know, in the commentary, uh, a life of one communist was more valuable than the life of several hundred, uh, you know, uh, so-called class enemies. Okay, that was terrible. But now look, uh, before, if you look at the Western newspapers, before November 2013, uh, when uh, uh, President Yanukovych declined to sign, you know, the association agreement uh, with the EU, uh, if you look at the Western newspapers, they all said that this agreement actually can be cancelled at any moment because Mrs. Timoshenko stays in jail. And, uh, and when I asked, you know, the Western politicians and Western journalists, why is it so important, you know, uh, this is a country of 46 million people signing an agreement with the European Union. Why is one woman so important? And they said, oh, that woman, you know, she's in jail. We know she is not ideal, she may be corrupt, but she's so valuable to us. Her life and her freedom are so valuable. Okay, uh, you know, there was this coup, you know, the, the new president was installed in Ukraine. Thousands of people got killed, first in Kiev, then in uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. And no one is talking about sanctions or about cancelling this uh, agreement, association agreement with the EU. So, for, for the Western rulers, the freedom of one person who supported them, the freedom of Yulia Timoshenko, is more important than the lives of six to 8,000 people. That's the calculus of neocon intent. Indeed, because, as you said, anything that advances the cause is justified, is morally Absolutely. justified. Absolutely, just like uh, it was morally justified for the early Soviet Bolsheviks uh, to kill and to, uh, to rob and to confiscate property from the enemies of the revolution. Uh, in the same way, it is 
anything is justified for uh, the United States government and for the, um, uh, you know, for the European so-called structures, European Commission, uh, European Council, everything is justified if it promotes the cause of these so-called colored revolutions. You can look at, uh, you can look at the sanctions which the European Union imposes. You know, it imposed sanctions on the former president Yanukovych and his family, despite the fact that uh, the family, you know, h- how can his grandson be uh, accused of anything, you know, a boy who went to kindergarten. Uh, so his enemy is under, uh, his family is under sanctions. And the new president, Mr. Poroshenko, under whom thousands of people were killed, and there was a food blockade imposed on three million people in southeastern Ukraine. That blockade still continues. He does not face any sanctions. He gets billions from the International Monetary Fund, including some money from the U.S. taxpayers, as you understand. And, and the only logic how it can be explained is Mr. Lenin's logic. Everything that promotes the revolution is moral. Well, and that would apply to... Well, I think that would apply equally to this Czech intelligence report. Um, anything being justified implies that anything that they can justify saying anything about Russia, for instance, even if it is not true. So I'm wondering about this this Czech intelligence report and if there's even any justification that they give that has any kind of plausible scenario to it about what Russia is doing. So do they do they say any of the countries that they allege that? that Russia is trying to take over or subvert in some way, or is it just all hot air? Well, uh, that report was just quoted by Czech newspapers. Okay. And, and uh, of course, it doesn't provide any facts or documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Czech newspapers just quote what the Czech security services say, and just like the Soviet papers uh, in the early Soviet times, they don't question the authenticity of their own uh, special services reports. If uh, STB, you know, the Czech, uh, the Czech uh, special service says it is true, then it must be true. And, and this is a very dangerous logic. You know, this is something that I think basically destroyed uh, a lot of international press in the last few years. Mm. Uh, you can make huge mistakes in your reports about Russia. Uh, you can claim that Khodorkovsky was honest or that uh, he was basically an ideal person, you know, helping the poor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can say uh, that Saddam Hussein had uh, nuclear weapons and you will never be brought to justice afterwards when it transpires that you lied. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say, uh, you know, you can cite lots of unconfirmed reports which prove to be false, you know. Uh, hundreds of such facts, uh, and you won't be fired. But if you say that Mr. Putin can be understood on this or that issue, or basically Russia has a point here and there, you can be fired even for saying that, <laughs> even if the facts that you cite supporting your your view are true. Uh, you will get an indignant letter from someone like Edward Lucas who will call you a useful idiot, you know, useful Putin's idiot or something, you will be called names, uh, and this is the best that can happen to you. If you are just a simple reporter, uh, and you make a, a report with this kind of comment, you know, including that comment into your report, you may lose your job. Uh, so this is the way it works. 
uh, with uh, you know the Western coverage of Russia. Any mistake defaming Putin and Russia and Russian people and the Russian state, any mistake is pardonable. Uh, any anything, even the truth, uh, supporting Russia or uh, sowing doubts about Western policy towards Russia, this is a punishable offense. Indeed, facts seem to be very fluid in the West when it comes to anything reported on or about Russia. Dmitry, I want to ask you something about a kind of a timeline of events regarding what happened in Ukraine, because it is important for explaining a lot of what's going on now. Um, do you think from the Russian perspective they saw what was coming and were prepared? I don't think anyone saw what was coming, and I think that what happened came as a surprise okay. to, to a lot of people. I, I think that the United States and the European Union, they didn't expect, first, they didn't expect uh, their own agents to be uh, so strong and successful. You know, Mr. Uh, Yatsenyuk and Mr. Klitschko, uh, you know, it looked uh, back in the Back in January 2014, back in the early days of February 2014, it, it looked like they lost because uh, the economy was improving. Uh, Ukraine got this loan from Russia, $3 billion, which the new Ukrainian government doesn't want to give us back. Uh, uh, it looked like, you know, everything was uh, fine. And then suddenly, you know, there was this uh, uh, most likely... Uh, Mr. Yanukovych was just betrayed uh, by some very important oligarchs who were pressured uh, by the West, and uh, the West probably was itself surprised that Yanukovych entrusted his television, uh, you know, Ukrainian television and uh, Ukrainian newspapers and uh, even police to people who were basically disloyal to him. Uh, well, I can I can tell you that I. I I imagine that that would happen, but again, I would not foresee, you know, the civil war that happened later. So the West did not expect its own agents to win, and when they won, uh, the West hoped for some kind of a compromise. You know, the West would be satisfied with the compromise, I think, uh, at the early stages. But then, uh, the guys who won, uh, most of them were really. Um, extremist nationalists who, who went all the way. You know, they, instead of uh, observing the agreement signed with Yanukovych on the 21st of February, they just viewed this agreement as a sign of weakness on his side and pressed on with violent action. So Yanukovych was ousted. Uh, I think his ouster came as a surprise both to Russia and the West. Uh, and then the West and a lot of people in Russia, and probably even Mr. Yanukovych himself, they didn't expect that people in the east of Ukraine and in Crimea would organize themselves so quickly and would proceed in such a decisive way. I understand why that happened, because, okay, we have been living here in Moscow and in the western capitals. We didn't know what was going on in Ukraine. I read the Ukrainian press and the amount of hatred in, in the nationalist newspapers uh, published in Kiev or in Lvov, the amount of hatred towards the people in uh, Donbass and in Crimea was unbelievable. 
they were called alcoholics, subhumans, uh, Soviet rudiments, you know, the remnants of, of a communist regime, uh, people who should be sidelined or marginalized or even better sent to Russia. So, uh, I mean, uh, I or you, we didn't live in the middle of it. And people in Donbass, they lived in the middle of it. They, they, they saw these reports, uh, you know, in the newspapers, on, on television broadcast from Kiev. So when they saw these people, their enemies, people like Mr. Tjadnibok and his Svoboda party, forming the government in Kiev, they reacted immediately. It's like, you know, imagine that Poles would be living in Nazi Germany, uh, in the east of Nazi Germany, and they suddenly saw that Hitler and, uh, and Goering came to power. Uh, they would act immediately, and, and they acted immediately. And unfortunately, very quickly, uh, a protest action in the East, uh, since Kiev started using armed forces, it very quickly degraded into a civil war. I don't think that the West was planning a civil war in Ukraine. Of course, Russia wasn't planning it, and you should remember that all of that was happening uh, when uh, Russia was just uh, ending the Olympic Games in Sochi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was just a risky move from the Ukrainian nationalists, which brought about unexpected results, okay. uh, unexpected for everyone. So, uh, Dmitry, on the Maidan uh, protests in particular, um, who do you think was behind the or responsible for the snipers who shot both policemen and protesters? Uh, well, it is hard to say. Uh, sitting here, because what I know is just, uh, you know, the reports that came from uh, uh, the Ukrainian commission, which investigated the affair, and they published several, um, some of their findings in, in, in the Ukrainian newspapers, I read them. Uh, then, you know, there were several uh, statements, statements from our foreign minister who who actually uh, described the situation. He described the photos where uh, Andriy Parubi, you know, one of the leaders, mm-hmm. uh, actually the commander of Maidan, uh, was carrying weapons, you know, uh, to, to a building near, near that uh, square. Uh, I think right now the evidence, if there was any evidence, that evidence has been destroyed mm. uh, because uh, the new Kiev regime owes its legitimacy to Maidan. Mm-hmm. So uh, it will try to destroy every trace of uh, the crime if indeed it was committed. If there was hard evidence that Yanukovych ordered the killing, uh, of course the authorities uh, in Ukraine would quickly produce it. Uh, but mm-hmm. we didn't see that evidence. So most likely it was, uh, you know, someone from the opposition because uh, you probably uh, remember that phone conversation. Mm-hmm. between uh, the, the Estonian foreign minister and mm-hmm. Catherine Ashton, and the Estonian foreign minister quotes uh, one of the activists of, of Maidan, you know, a woman who said that, you know, the people who fired these weapons, they were probably not from the Yanukovych camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you on my side that, for example, Andriy Parubi, he is a real Nazi. He co-founded, uh, you know, this so-called National Social Party of Ukraine in 1991, together with Alek Tjaknimbok. Uh, you know, the, later the party was renamed Svoboda in 2004 mm-hmm. because 
you know what national social means in uh, in in Ukraine in 1991. It was just uh, a euphemism for a national socialist party of Ukraine. And uh, and uh, I read uh, the articles of Mr. Parubi. I heard his speeches. He is a real provincial Nazi, and for him. Uh, he constantly speaks about the need for sacrifice. Uh, you know, he constantly speaks about the fate of the nation. Uh, and for him to kill several people, even his own activists, would not be a problem. Mm. Because he always requires uh, blood and sacrifices from his own supporters. He basically has been saying since the beginning of the Maidan that we're going to win because uh, Yanukovych and the guys on the other side of the barricades, they're not prepared to die. Uh, and we can die, and we can kill, uh, so we're stronger, not because we have more weapons, uh, but because we don't have these limitations on our activities. The, the breaks which Mr. Yanukovych has, we don't have these breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the reason I asked was because that uh, those cup those two days or so when um, a lot of people were killed by snipers, uh, that was a decisive moment that really um, you know forced Yanukovych to to flee because it was just previous to that where he had signed the agreement that you had mentioned that would well, keep keep him in power for a little while. He would have elections later in the year. It was going to be a, a process of transition, but the 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 deaths by snipers seems to have uh, precipitated him uh, well, leaving. If you remember the exact timeline, let me remind you what happened. First, there was this shootout. You know, uh, there were actually uh, like two days of uh, shoot-to-kill mm-hmm. actions. Mm-hmm. Then uh, there was an attack, uh, a sudden attack uh, by, uh, by the Maidan activists. You know, they set on fire the headquarters of the Party of Regions with uh, several people uh, dead in that attack. You know, one of them killed by the attackers, you know, the the guard who tried to prevent them from entering the building. Mm. The other people just got burnt alive inside the building. Uh, And and then this agreement was signed in order to, like, stop the violence and have the investigation. And instead of fulfilling this agreement, guaranteed by the foreign ministers of France, Germany, Poland, and uh, by a Russian liberal uh, sent by Mr. Putin there, Vladimir Lukin. You can look at his credentials. If Putin wanted to send someone who hates him to Kiev, that was Mr. Lukin. So, uh, of course, that agreement was not worth the paper uh, that, w- that it was signed on because uh, the, European, uh, the European foreign ministers quickly sided uh, with the Maidan. Actually, they have been siding with Maidan 100% since the very beginning. So it was very naive uh, on the side of Mr. Yanukovych to see them as guarantors of that agreement. By the way, none of these ministers later was fired. Uh, neither Frank-Walter Steinmeier nor, uh, you know, the, the Polish uh, foreign minister who uh, cracked up to be a terrible liar later on, you know, Radoslav Sikorsky, mm. uh, the one who made several scandalous statements later on. Uh, a pathological liar, uh, and of course, Mr. Fabius, you know, the French foreign minister, we have seen him very active in Syria during all these years. Um, I can tell you that uh, a great, a great uh, deal of responsibility for what happened in Syria is on Mr. Fabius. Uh, so Ukraine would just uh, 
add a little to that burden on his conscience. Well, um, with everything that's happened since, of course, there's the MH17 incident. Uh, we've had a couple of winters, but we've had one winter. Uh, winter's coming again soon. Ukraine remains as a state still on the brink of default. I mean, it really is, but they're keeping it alive. Ukraine said Wednesday it'll be halting paying its external debt. Mm. Uh, between this and the semi-peace standoff in the Ukraine southeast, do you see any potential developments there in, in the coming future, in the near future? Well, the situation is very volatile, and uh, there is something that people in the West don't uh, don't hear very often, uh, even though the Ukrainian television keeps telling it to Ukrainians every day. Actually, the so-called rebels control just 3% of the Ukrainian territory. Very small. Very small. So when they say, oh, Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, Russia wants to, uh, uh, to invade Ukraine up to Kiev or even uh, to reach Lvov, this is just laughable because what, what the rebels want is just to be left in peace on 3% of the Ukrainian territory. There were more than 50% of uh, Ukrainian voters in the second round of the vote in 2010 who voted for Mr. Yanukovych. Uh, so 50%, actually there were 52% that voted for him, otherwise he would not have won. So 52% of the Ukrainian population, which was basically delegitimized uh, by the coup that happened in February 2014, they want for themselves 3% of the Ukrainian territory. I think it's a pretty modest deal, you know. Uh, 3% of the territory for 52% of the vote. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the problem is that uh, why these 3% are so important? Because these are densely populated areas. This is the old industrial region. Uh, how was it uh, created. In the end of the 19th century, coal was found there. And the German industrialists, you know, German investors have built there several big factories to uh, a lot of mines and several big, uh, you know, steel mills to produce steel, you know, using the coal extracted from the land there. And the people who were sent to work there, it was still under the Tsar, they were Russians. Russians from Ryazan, Russians from Moscow, Russians from poor uh, areas in central Russia. Uh, in 1920, when uh, you know, Mr. Lenin determined the federal structure of the Soviet Union, this area was declared a Ukrainian territory, first because it was not very important under the Soviet Union, and second, because, you know, the aim was to keep Ukrainian nationalists happy, you know, let them have a lot of territory so that they don't uh, object too often to initiatives coming from Moscow. Uh, and these people, they lived peacefully uh, and uh, more or less happily in uh, the Soviet Ukraine. They uh, put up with pressure from Kiev and from Lvov uh, during the period of Ukrainian independence. But when the people like Parubi and Tjagdibok and, and Yatsenyuk and Poroshenko, when these kind of people came to power in Kiev, they understood that they simply won't be allowed to live peacefully anymore. 
And because one of the slogans of Maidan was that those Russians who want to leave according to our rules, to our rules, these Russians can stay in Ukraine. Those Russians who don't want to leave according to our rules, they can pack up their belongings and leave for Russia. That was one of the slogans. And, and you can even read a lot of interviews from Maidan activists in the Western newspapers saying exactly that. And, uh, uh, of course, people there rebelled, and uh, uh, these 3% of the Ukrainian territory that they control, this is actually, you know, the big cities, Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, big cities and the agglomeration around them, uh, where you have densely populated areas because you have coal there, you have steel, you have people living in, like, miners and steel workers' communities. Uh, whether, you know, what will happen to them, I'm very concerned because, uh, of course, uh, the war can restart at any moment. In Kiev, they love uh, talking about uh, what they call creation experience. If you remember, uh, after the initial civil war in the former Yugoslavia, there was a region populated by Serbs inside mm -hmm. Croatia called Serbska Kraina. And, uh, you know, Croatians initially left these people in peace after the first war. Then they waited for uh, three years. And in 1995, they attacked again. And the West agreed with Milosevic that uh, Serbia would not intervene. So in a matter of two days, Serbska Krajina was destroyed. And uh, even the Russian liberals who visited that area, they now say on Russian radio, that actually they didn't see a single Serb there afterwards. Uh, you know, they just saw a lot of churches destroyed and the area quickly became Croatian again. So the, the Ukrainian leaders right now, they say that we need to repeat uh, the Croatian experience. We just have to wait until Russia has a different leader or Russia looks the other way. And then we attack. And we will win in the same way Croatians won in 1995. That's that's a scary thought. So they're talking about ethnic cleansing with the blessing of the West. Well, uh, as I told you, uh, you know, their formula is uh, those Russians who want to live according to our rules, which means basically not studying uh, uh, Russian as a language of higher education. You can use it in day-to-day -day communication at home. Uh, you can even have maybe some newspapers in Russian or television in Russian but you will pass your exams to the university in Ukrainian. And uh, you will have to accept our ideology that uh, Ukraine was occupied by Russia in the 17th century, so you are an, a descendant of the occupiers. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine was a victim of the two regimes in the Second World War, uh, you know, with a, a sign of equality put between the Nazi regime in Germany and the communist regime in the Soviet Union, you will have to accept it all. And if you don't accept it, uh, the best that happens to you is you go to Russia. The worst is, uh, well, you can see how many people have been killed already. And, and if you look at uh, Poroshenko's statements, I mean, if you take the trouble and uh, translate them from Russian, there available on Russian in a lot of resources in, in Ukrainian media, his message to the rebels when he sent the troops against Donbass was the following. Uh, uh, we opened for you two corridors to Russia. 
So uh, the so-called fighters, you know, about Chelsea, leave through these corridors, go to Russia. We won't stop you from leaving. The other ones, uh, please stay at home. Uh, we will be with you shortly. We will organize elections for you. Stay at home. So basically, the message was, uh, if, you, if you don't like our rule, the only choice for you is to leave. We won't prevent you from leaving. But the problem is that uh, these people in, in Donetsk and Lugansk, they don't have homes in Russia. They lived all of their lives in Donetsk and Lugansk. They worked as miners, they worked as steel workers. They don't have money to buy another apartment in Russia. So that's why they fight. That's why they uh, survive under the bombs and continue resisting uh, the authorities in Kiev despite the food blockade despite, you know, the, the bombings, despite the threat of uh, a new onslaught from the Ukrainian army, which has amassed a huge amount of forces, you know, at least 50,000 armed men. Um, but people, you know, since they don't have homes in Russia, most of them stay. They, they allowed the children and the women to go to Russia. We have about 900,000 refugees at least. You don't see these refugees as easily as uh, the Syrian refugees in Europe because these are ethnic Russians who look exactly like us, who speak exactly like us. We can't tell them <laughs> from our own population, but they are refugees because they live with relatives or they live uh, in uh, hotels or they live in special refugee centers created in Russia. They, they don't have homes in Russia. So what's your... Um What's your prediction for the for the future then? Um, I mean, you outlined the scenario where if they if they are allowed to or if they're able to, that the Kiev government will kind of ethnically cleanse or will will try and take back Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, what what uh, do you think that will happen, or what do you think the final solution might be? Not to use that term, but uh, <laughs> I understand. I understand. Uh, well, uh, I think, uh, you know, I had to answer this question last year. I remember how a CNN correspondent called me in August 2014, and she said, well, look, I mean, these people are stranded on just 3% of the Ukrainian territory. The, the Ukrainian troops are, uh, you know, tightening the nooms. What do you think will happen? And I said that they won't give up. They will continue resisting because this is the only way they can survive. If, if they are defeated on the ground, they will go underground, they will hide uh, uh, in the cities, you know, with the population supporting them, or in the bushes. Uh, but um, uh, unfortunately, the, the Ukrainian government did not leave these people much choice for a compromise. If you look at the Ukrainian newspapers, despite the fact that the Minsk agreements presuppose an amnesty, for uh, all the uh, participants, uh, you know, they're identified as participants in the events that took place since November 2013. Despite this proclaimed amnesty, every day the Ukrainian media report about uh, mayors or former mayors uh, or just uh, local officials being arrested, you know, local officials and mayors on the territory of Donbass. Uh, which is now controlled by the Ukrainian troops, but which held the referendum on uh, federalization. 
it was not called the referendum on independence, it was called the referendum on federalization of Ukraine in, in the spring 2014. You probably remember about that referendum. You know, the Western media tried to present it as, uh, uh, as a farce, but in fact it was not a farce, it was a very important decision for these people. For many it was the decision of their lives. And and the people uh, who stay or, or on the territories controlled by the rebels, they also read these newspapers in Kiev. They know how the former activists get arrested. And they know what awaits them if they surrender. So uh, even if the Ukrainian forces attack again, uh, my prediction is, uh, you know, variant one, they will be defeated just like the, the, the last time. Variant two, uh, there will be a lot of underground uh, guerrilla activity. And uh, uh, simply the Ukrainian authorities will not be allowed to rule peacefully in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are other examples from around the world and over the course of the 20th century that show that... Um, a kind of a low intensity, low level conflict can can continue on for many decades, you know, and life can, to some extent, can be normal. Um, I'm thinking here of like Northern Ireland, for example, where there was mm-hmm. a you know a guerrilla war essentially against the state for um, for 30 years, and uh, you know, it, 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 well, it, I can I can give you an example. Usually, people talk about uh, you know. Uh, open resistance, and and there are cases of open resistance usually in the Muslim populated areas, but there are more and more such areas in Europe. Just recently on a liberal radio station that we have here called Echo of Moscow, Echo of Moscow, there was a very liberal guy, very pro-Western, Artemy Troitsky, telling about his recent visit to Estonia. And he was telling his liberal listeners in Moscow how Estonia is very well managed, how uh, everything is done by internet there. And then just uh, when they asked him, so what was not so good in Estonia? He said, well, actually, you know, the two communities, Russians and Estonians, are completely segregated. In fact, it's South Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at who works in Maldona, McDonald's, you will only see Russians. And if you look at the government offices, they are all uh, employing Estonians. And then he continued talking how nicely Estonia is run, how what a cozy place it is, how beautiful Tallinn looks in the winter, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> to me, it was like, you know, uh, you describe an excellent spaceship. The only problem is that the astronauts are dead inside it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, very nice country, you know, very, very peaceful and very uh, cozy and everything. But it is South Africa in mm-hmm. the middle of Europe. Yeah, yeah. It- it reminds me of the concept, a Nazi concept, Herrenvoke democracy, where the ethnic ruling class is defined ethnically in, in the Nazi terms by an ethnic German, and everyone else is below. Well, in, in Estonia it is ethnic because Estonians are a small nation, and uh, there is a large Russian community there, and uh, the language, Estonian language, is very difficult, despite the fact that the local Russians usually speak it you know, it's very difficult to get inside a small nation because you must mm-hmm. really, uh, you can't do it just by learning the language and, and reading the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, big nations are usually more generous. They take people in. 
small nations are a different matter. But in, in Ukraine, uh, I think that the war is not ethnic. It is ideological. As I told you, uh, you know, the problem is not learning Ukrainian, uh, even though, like, you should agree that your children, if they want to have proper education, they will have to pass their exams in Ukrainian. Uh, but the main problem is not the language. The main problem is your ideological allegiance. There are several people in the Ukrainian government, including the Minister of Interior, who don't speak uh, Ukrainian. Uh, whenever they speak publicly, they speak in Russian. Uh, Mr. Abakov is the Minister of Interior. He is an ethnic Armenian from Kharkov, you know, the east of Ukraine, where most of the local population speaks Russian. And he is a very cruel, nasty uh, Minister of Interior, he he doesn't stop at using repressions at any moment, but he can't speak Ukrainian, he only speaks Russian. And this is okay for the Ukrainian nationalists, because this guy is one of ours. Mm. He killed people for us. He also thinks that, uh, you know, Hitler is better than Stalin. He also supported the Maidan, and uh, he threw uh, uh, you know, Molotov cocktails at police or help the people who throw these bottles. Uh, he, he is sure that the life of, of a person who is against uh, the new Ukraine is not worth anything. So he's one of ours. Okay, he will learn Ukrainian late or maybe his children will learn Ukrainian. We don't care. Uh, so the main, uh, you know, the difference with Estonia is that in Ukraine, the war is ideological. In, in Estonia, the discrimination is ethnic. Hmm. Uh, Dimitri, I just wanted to um, go back to something you said at the beginning when we talked about an article you, you recently wrote about um, about how the West or about how, how Russia is being accused of using the tactics of the of the Comintern or the Communist International, you know, to spread revolution around the world and, and the, the reality of the situation, which is what that's exactly what the West is doing. That's been their policy for a long time. But it's kind of interesting that um, that's actually been a policy of the West, it seems, uh, going back a long time, back to the early early 20th century, because there's, a, there's an interesting quote from a guy uh, uh, back in 1924. His name was Otto... Can he was a, a Wall Street uh, banker. He was close friends with uh, the Warburgs, the big banking uh, families of Wall Street, um, and he was a banker himself. And he, sp- he spoke to in 1924. He spoke to the, the American League for Industrial Democracy, which was a, a kind of socialist group, but it actually a few years later it mer- merged with a, a communist group. So it was effectively a communist group within the U.S. in the 1920s in America. And he, this Wall Street banker, Can spoke to them. And he said, what you radicals and we who hold opposing views differ about is not so much the end as the means, not so much what should be brought about as how it should and can be brought about. So um, there's other stuff on, on, I mean, there's a whole thesis or out there on the Internet and in different people's books about, um, about uh, you mentioned the neocons as well in their ideology, but a lot of the original neocons were kind of Trotskyist types, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see that this idea of, of spreading revolution around the world that was originally uh, ascribed to to the, the communists mm-hmm. seems to have been a policy or an ideology of 
Western capitalists, essentially. At least they had it in the back of their mind uh, a long time ago. Well, that's true. Uh, and uh, if you look at the things from a broader context, uh, I think uh, this is all a part of de-Christianization of, uh, of uh, ideologies and of uh, people's minds in general. In the late 19th, early 20th century, if you look at the ideologies that sprang up then, you would see uh, liberalism, you would see nationalism, and you would see socialism, or communism, whatever you call it. Mm. So we have already seen, you know, a terrible, terrible caricature of nationalism in, in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we have seen uh, only a slightly better caricature of socialism in, in the Soviet Union and its uh, so-called allies. And now liberalism is showing us that uh, it can, its face cannot be, uh, its face can be not much, uh, not much more beautiful Mm-hmm. If if it is allowed to, to to use the methods of nationalists and, and communists in order to come to power, and uh, and indeed you are absolutely right, and Mr. Khan probably had a point uh, when he said that the methods were so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the problem with the, the modern Western leaders, and I think that makes them very different from uh, a much milder generation of people, even under Reagan or before him or under Nixon, you know, Nixon saw the nuances. He was ready to compromise even with Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. And he saw people who were like uh, fellow travelers, you know, uh, all of these real social democrats uh, in in Czechoslovakia, all of these, uh, um, you know, Indian and independence uh, fighters, he didn't see them as enemies. The, the, the current regime uh, in the United States and uh, the, the Eurocrats in uh, the European Union, for them, uh, people in Russia or in Ukraine or, or in Moldova even, they are strictly divided. You know, uh, the enemies who happen to be just about everyone who supports the sovereignty of Russia or real sovereignty of Ukraine or Moldova, and the allies. And the allies are defined as a pretty narrow circle of, uh, like, total allies, people who share uh, the Western views completely. You know, uh, in, in Russia, there are many groups which are actually opposed to Putin, uh, but which are not ready to accept that the West is doing the right thing in Syria, in Ukraine, in all of these places. Mm. And these groups are seen as enemies uh, by the United States and the European Union. And their leaders were also included in the sanctions lists. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and this is exactly the communist attitude. You know, for Joseph Stalin, uh, there was no such thing as allies. Uh, uh, you know, the social democrats in Germany, he viewed them all as enemies, all social fascists, as he said. Hmm. Uh, and now we have the same, the same practice, but now not only, uh, like independent groups, but even basically non-political individuals are included in the category of enemies. If you look at the sanctions lists, uh, of the United States in Russia, there was this woman, Svetlana Zhurova, a skating champion, an Olympian skating champion. She was included in that list. 
only because she was a member of the United Russia Party. Uh, but this is just laughable. She had absolutely no influence on, for example, the decision to take Crimea back to Russia. She did not hurt anyone. <laughs> she is a very nice woman, actually doing sports, and, uh, you know, she is more interested in, like, public activity than politics. And mm -hmm. she is in the sanctions list. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you, if you look at the Ukrainian government, things that they do are just absurd, you know, and that's why I don't believe that this government will not last long. They have prohibited 500, more than 500 Russian movies. Basically, any movies where the military or police are shown in a positive light, including the movies made back in the Soviet times. Hmm. But, but you know what it is? It's like prohibiting Hollywood in Canada. Yeah. Uh, because the language is the same. A lot of actors were actually from Ukraine. Whole <laughs> generations were raised on these movies. Well, any government that would prohibit, for example, uh, Saving Soldier Ryan, in Saving Private Ryan in Canada, that government is doomed because it's idiotic. Yeah. Especially in the times of Internet. Well, Ken, the inclusion of that uh, Olympic skater uh, on the sanctions list by the, by the West speaks to the kind of... The, the propagandistic nature of the sanctions and the West's desire to kind of use as much as so-called economic sanctions use uh, propaganda to uh, to tarnish Russia's image and to cultural to, sanctions. Yeah, effectively, because I mean, in theory, I suppose they might have thought that this um, that the the Olympic skater. Could have been, uh, you know, she 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 may have uh, spoken uh, at some international forum or something and expressed her opinion or something. So you got to shut her up and anybody else who has any public profile uh, from saying anything that the West doesn't want them to say. You know. Well, uh, I understand this logic, and uh, of course, uh, this is exactly what Victoria Nuland uh, or John Kerry, who compiled at least, this is exactly what they had in mind. Uh, but this is simply stupid, you it's know, stupid, yeah. <laughs> because, because uh, okay, uh, I'm not a great uh, fan of skating, but probably mm -hmm. there are people in the world who are really fond of skating mm -hmm. and, and who know that woman by her face mm -hmm. and who probably remember her scores. And if they hear, even being unpolitical, if they hear, oh, this woman is under sanctions, she can't go to Poland, she can't go to... Latvia, she can go to Paris, she can go to London, she can go to Ottawa, she can go to Australia, uh, they may have questions. Even mm. those of them who normally don't have questions and who mm. uh, eat all the stuff prepared for them by Victoria Nuland and John Kerry, at a certain moment they may ask, okay, what has this woman got to do with that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it 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 risks. It's a it's a risky business for the West. You know, it's a double-edged sword. This uh, their approach to Russia, which uh, you know, which like you said, is stupid and irrational. But they uh, they're forced to do it. You know, uh, they they can't help themselves. They have to do it. And as part of that, they risk exposing themselves to rational-minded people as as being irrational. Well. Uh, as you rightly said, in many ways, uh, uh, the West now reminds me of the Soviet Union. The Soviet, the Soviet Union did exactly the same stupid things. Mm. 
when people made, you know, the Russian artists, uh, when they made uh, so-called anti-Soviets, uh, anti-Soviet statements in the West, uh, they were not allowed back into the country, uh, and sometimes they were even stripped uh, of the Soviet citizenship. And that didn't make uh, Mr. Brezhnev look very pretty, uh, because obviously he himself could not dance very well and he could not perform <laughs> on, on piano or cello. So when he stripped uh, Stislav Rostopovich, you know, the famous cello player of his Soviet citizenship, that was a defeat for him, for Brezhnev, mm. not for Rostopovich. In the same way, when now Mr. Poroshenko unveiled, uh, you know, this so-called sanctions list against 388 persons, not only from Russia, but also from Ukraine, his own citizens. Mm. And when he said, oh, these people can't visit Ukraine, they can't have any business in Ukraine, they can't hold their assets in Ukraine, well, he behaved worse than Brezhnev, because Brezhnev, before not allowing these people to return, he stripped them of the Soviet citizenship. And what Mr. Poroshenko is doing, it is like, okay, you are still a Ukrainian citizen, we want your taxes, we want your money, but we don't allow you to visit your own country. <laughs> and, yeah. and that looks stupid, you know. And, uh, you know, the height of his stupidity was to include in that list of 388 forbidden persons a correspondent of the BBC, mm -hmm. Emma Wells, and uh, a famous, famous German editor-in-chief uh, of a daily newspaper, Rheinische Mercure, Michael Rutz. That was, you know, the height of his stupidity. He uh, canceled that decision later. Uh, first, he said, okay, let the BBC woman <laughs> come to Ukraine. Uh, but first, uh, he already did the damage by announcing it in the first mm -hmm. place. The Western press, of course, tried to ignore it, but the Russian press did not ignore it. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know... Mr. Poroshenko constantly talks about the freedom of press and the need to criticize oligarchs, and look how he behaves. <laughs> even even Mr. Brezhnev did not uh, did not dare to prohibit BBC reporters from entering the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Dimitri, I just wanted to get your take on um, the Syrian business, uh, ISIS, or whatever they're called. Um, and, and what Russia's strategy is, what's going on in, in Tartus and uh, Latika? Uh, well, I think that uh, we have a very, very complicated game there. Uh, but uh, one thing I can exclude from the beginning, Russia will not occupy Syria as uh, the Fox News reported. <laughs> First, because Russia does not have the capacity to do it, but will it, an will it annex Syria? <laughs> oh, you know, if, uh, if something cannot happen on the planet Earth, uh, and if there is something that Mr. Uh, Mr. Putin would have as his worst nightmare, mm. this is actually Russia having to fight ISIS in one of its autonomous republics named Syria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is just too much. Yeah. Even, even for, even, I think if, uh, this is not too much for just one station in the world, that is for Fox News. And yeah. probably a couple of individuals like uh, Andrew Lucas would also swallow it. Yeah. But in general, I think, uh, what happened was that, uh, and this is 
how I explain the influx of refugees to, to Europe. If you look at the recent statements by the Western leaders, they kept talking about the need to impose a no-fly zone in the north of Syria for the Syrian government aviation. And this was said by uh, Wolfgang Ischinger, uh, you know, the head of the Munich Security Conference. Then Manuel Valls, you know, the prime minister mm -hmm. of, of uh, France, he added uh, some oil to, uh, oil to the fire by saying that France could get involved with its planes there. So people got scared in Syria because if the government aviation can't operate against ISIL, then ISIL wins. Uh, because on the ground, they have superiority. The, the Syrian army can fend them off primarily because it has support from the air, not from the United States aviation, but from their own Syrian aviation. Mm. So my guess is that Putin's strategy was to deliver to Syria certain weapons and probably some planes, which would make an establishment of such a no-fly zone a costly affair for the Western powers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and people, if you look at the statistics, people fled before it became apparent that the no-fly zone, uh, you know, is not going to happen. Uh, they fled when there was a real danger that Assad would lose control and, and the ISIL would occupy uh, a big part of Syria, including probably Baghdad. Uh, sorry, including probably Damascus. Damascus. Yeah. So um, this is as far as Russia can go, I think, delivering to the Syrian government the weapons which can protect it from, from a Western uh, interference in the form of a no-fly zone. There is already a Western interference with the American, uh, the British, and even Australian planes <laughs> bombing the Syrian territory. Mm -hmm. But okay, you know, the Syrian government can put up with that, but a no-fly zone, that would be a disaster for everyone. Just just like the American bombing of uh, the Syrian government positions in autumn 2013 would be a disaster because the so-called Islamic State was already in the making. You know, mm -hmm. the, the Islamists were already there. And, and if the Syrian government troops had been bombed, what would happen? The ISIS would declare itself not in Raqqa, but in Damascus, mm -hmm. taking hold of all of their chemical weapons and other deadly stuff, you know, now in the hands of Mr. Assad. And, and then the world would have a 10 times bigger problem than, than the one it is having now with ISIS. Dmitry, what, what about the proposal uh, that the Russian government has put forward, or Putin, for a new anti-ISIS coalition? Um, if that goes forward, where, what role do you see Russia playing in the future? Well, I think it's a very sensible proposal. Uh, the one that reminds me of anti-Hitler coalition in 1941. Uh, and uh, interestingly, it is actually feasible uh, because, uh, strange as it may sound, relations between Saudi Arabia and Russia improved. Mm -hmm. the, the Saudi crown prince came here and promised an investment of $10 billion. Uh, why did that happen? Well, because the Saudis are also at a loss on what they should do with the ISIL. ISIL is also a threat to them. Uh, they were instrumental in, in uh, 
make an ISIL so important because they helped to weaken the Syrian army. But now we have a different situation. And now the old scores, like who did what two or three years ago, these old scores should be forgotten. Just like in 1941, Churchill and Stalin forgot what they had been saying about each other in the 30s, right? Right. Uh, or uh, de Gaulle and Churchill, who hated each other, uh, also, for the time being, did not make their differences public. Uh, so it's a feasible, uh, feasible plan, but it comes from someone whom the West does not, does not accept as the plan maker. Mm -hmm. So probably it was not even very wise on Putin's side to, uh, you know, to make that plan public himself. <laughs> well, uh, because well, right now, whatever Putin says, the West always ascribes, you know, it, it never takes his words at the face value. Mm -hmm. uh, his words are always twisted, uh, and the worst of his intentions are ascribed to Putin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it seems to me that um, Putin was the one who created the conditions where this plan was necessary. Uh, because from what you're saying, um, ISIS was created and, and funded uh, by the Saudis and with the help of the Americans and the West. And the Turks. Uh, as, and the Turks especially, uh, as, a, as a proxy kind of mercenary army to go and unseat uh, Assad, mm -hmm. after, after which they would be made to go away. But um, Russia's help to the Syrian government has prevented them from being able to do that. Mm -hmm. So the West and Turkey and the Saudis are now in a bit of a, a bit of a bind. It's a bit of a stalemate. They they don't see any victory anytime soon or even ever, and they have to decide what to do to um, to do with ISIS. ISIS now this 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 group that they've created. Uh, they, well, they have to be made to go away before they achieve their objective, which is getting rid of Assad. Uh, you are right, but I would not <coughs> overestimate Russia's role in mm -hmm. in. Uh, preventing uh, the Syrian government from being toppled. Mm. Uh, no amount of weapons would have saved Assad mm -hmm. if uh, he didn't face uh, such a terrible opponent as uh, the Syrian Islamists. Uh, and you can give them different names. You know, in the beginning, they were probably called the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, the Muslim mm. Brotherhood was actually the main group opposing uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez Assad. Mm. And they started that uh, uh, insurgency in 1980s, you know, when the army used bombs and, uh, you know, this was all uh, ascribed to Mr. Assad's cruelty. Uh, so initially it was the Muslim Brotherhood. Then we had Jabhat al-Nusra. Later, a lot of people from Jabhat al-Nusra, we now see them speaking on behalf of ISIS. Uh, so these are Sunni radicals, uh, Sunni extremists, if you want, from, uh, from Syria and from Iraq, operating on the territory of Syria and uh, operating in a very cruel way. Uh, and precisely because they were so cruel and so nasty, the people in Syria, even those who did not like Mr. Assad particularly, resisted. And they would resist even without Russian weapons, uh, because the alternative is to die or to be treated in Europe the way the other Syrian refugees are treated. Uh, so I think that the reason why uh, Mr. Assad and his regime didn't crumble 
It is not the Russian or Iranian support, but the alternative which the people live in, especially in the Alawite and Christian-dominated areas of, of Syria, the alternative that they face. Indeed. Well, all eyes are on New York next week, mm-hmm. where Putin is scheduled to appear. What's he going to say? What's, what's his message He's going to declare war on America. Well, I don't know. <laughs> he discussed it today with his uh, Security Council members, and I think the message will be a moderate one. He will try to be constructive. Uh, I think that on Syria, he would stick to his idea of a real international coalition, not the one led by the United States. Uh, on Ukraine, he would call for, a, 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 you know, everyone observing the Minsk agreements, not just the rebels. Uh, you know, the problem with the Minsk agreements is that the Ukrainian side and the West, they just, they see only one part of these agreements. The one that says that the Ukrainian state should sooner or later reestablish control over the border between Donetsk and Lugansk uh, regions and Russia. Uh, but if you read the text very attentively, you will see that before this reestablishment of Ukrainian control, the economic and the food blockade of these regions should be lifted. And this is very logical because right now the border with Russia is the lifeline for the 3 million people living on these 3% of the Ukrainian territory. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kiev regime has imposed a total food blockade. On Kiev television, you can see how trucks with food, even with dog food, uh, uh, headed for Donetsk are being stopped. Uh, you know, how the police is trying to find out who owns these trucks. These people are uh, brought to justice as, uh, as smugglers. Uh, so uh, the food and the water and the electricity, all of it comes from Russia via the border. So if uh, if uh, Mr. Poroshenko is given control over the border right now, that would mean that uh, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk would, would share the fate of Leningrad in 1942 and 1943. Total blockade until total surrender. Uh, and, and of course, this is not acceptable, primarily for the people in Donetsk and Lugansk. So Putin will be speaking about the need to fulfill the Minsk agreements in full. We haven't got too much time. You know, the Minsk agreements expire on the 1st of January uh, 2016. Uh, and that's what he's going to say on Ukraine. On Syria, as I said, he would be, uh, you know, urging people to join this uh, broad coalition against ISIL. Uh, he probably will respond to the accusations that Russia sends soldiers to Syria. Obviously, Russia is not uh, going to fight on the ground against uh, the ISIL, even though even though these people are actually, uh, I wouldn't mind uh, if uh, international coalition fought against them. Uh, and uh, and uh, he will have a meeting with Obama, and Obama's office already made it clear that they would push for uh, push for Russia joining the American-led coalition. This is well, what Obama will be talking about. I also saw that there was a, an article in RT about the agreement that Obama and Putin would meet and that one of the talking points on Obama's part 
would be to stress that Putin and Russia have to abide by the Minsk agreements. Yes. And, and for them, Minsk <laughs> agreements is, is uh, given the control over the border to Russia. Yeah, back, yeah, back mm -hmm. to Kiev. But no mention of the fact that Kiev hasn't held up any of its side of the bargain. Well, there is no constitutional. There is no constitutional reform. No. There is no uh, lifting of the food blockade. Instead, there is a food blockade of Crimea, mm -hmm. uh, and there is no amnesty. As I told you, the Ukrainian press reports new arrests every day, arrests of the people who organized these referendums in 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 spring 2014. Uh, hundreds of criminal cases started, you know. So this is the kind of amnesty. Mm -hmm. This is what Kiev is doing on its side. Okay, um, Dmitry, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show to speak with us. I yeah. hope I was not too boring. Thank not God. at all. No, not at all. Very interesting. interesting. It's great to get a Russian perspective. We don't get enough in the West at all. So... <laughs> It's fantastic that uh, we could speak with you today. Um, Dmitry Babich of Sputnik International, very big thank you. And very big thank you from me to all three of you, to Niall, to Joe, and to Harrison. Thank you. All right, Dmitry. Thanks, Melian. Have a great day. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Yeah, so that was very interesting. Uh, Dmitry uh, seems like a, a guy with his... With head screwed on, he sees what's going on. But then that's true of most Russian uh, commentators, political commentators, yeah. and analysts. They they can see what's happening and see what's going on. And um, yeah, compared to, I mean, it's just diametrically opposed to what uh, what you get from the West, you know. Well, it's like he was saying. It's almost as if. Well, it is as if. Not even as if it has been. The two positions have changed. We had the Soviet propaganda and the whole. Uh, Soviet machine has been just transferred over to the West, and it seems like the roles have reversed. So now, nowadays, it seems like the Russian journalists are the ones that are actually telling the truth and can see things as they are and basically say say things as they are, whereas the West has taken the line that pretty much everything they say is strictly designed to achieve some kind of propaganda goal. And mm. he was saying um, the the end justifies the means, and anything that doesn't advance the the American cause is immoral, and anything yeah. it does is fair game. Right, although I don't think that the, the Americans, even during the Cold War, ever ever yeah. told the truth about anything. You know, I think Russia, Russian, Russia is kind of unique in that in that respect these days. I mean, it's amazing that it's actually unique in the world, really, in terms of just having a, a government and a, a president like, like Putin who actually tells the truth. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that, that... There hasn't really been anybody like that since, I mean, of of that stature in terms of uh, as the leader of a major world nation since uh, JFK, basically. And even JFK, uh, his vision was a bit kind of coloured by, well, and it was he, he was a bit restricted. Three, three, years. three years, very brief. And he was also um, restricted by the fact that uh, you know he couldn't exactly... Uh, criticize his own country uh, too harshly, which is what what would have been required, you know. Mm -hmm. So you really, in terms of the U.S. being the primary uh, progenitor of chaos and suffering around the world in the most for most of the 20th century, um, uh, there's there's no other major country outside of the U.S. in the world that was ever in a position to really. Uh, 
broadcast a signal to the whole world effectively about that kind of death and suffering that was being uh, uh, perpetrated on the people of the world you know so it's it's almost like a unique situation mm-hmm. right now at, at least in in modern modern history um so yeah but it's uh, you can see what informs their their perspective it's and why it's so helpful for the world in general at this point in time um they can quite easily, it jumps out of them, in fact, when Western leaders make statements or when they commit themselves to actions, the Russians see that they immediately recognize the flavor of it and the underlying motivations behind the ideological explanations for why mm-hmm. X said Y or why they're doing what they're doing because they remember very well, very recently, mm-hmm. they have a, 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 a very well-earned lesson yeah. from living under this kind of regime. And so the perspective, the help they provide for the planet mm. in holding up a mirror to this kind of it's, yeah, it's vital it's ideology vital. masked over something very different. Yeah, it's absolutely vital. Uh, and I think it's coming at a time when things are particularly bad on the planet. So there's nothing, I don't think there's anything coincidental about it either in that sense. But um, it's just the arrogance of the U.S. They're like um, the American government, the American politicians, the powers that be, whatever you want to call them, including their mouthpieces in the media, who more or less, who often, very often, in fact, are, are more virulent and uh, are more um, hysterical in their comments than the politicians, you know, because I suppose they think they can get away with it. That's what they're pandering to. But uh, they're pandering to a, a, an audience, I suppose, that likes a lot of uh, hysteria and emotion. But, but it's amazing that... Um, just the level of of self deception and delusion, you know, it, it's it's something that comes with uh, a really entrenched belief in your own rightness uh, and power, and um, almost like ma- like the like the American kind of manifest de- destiny type idea. You know, it's it's bizarre. It's actually quite mentally uh, unhinged um, the way that they talk about things. I mean. You can, there's so many different examples. Like uh, recently, the deputy defense deputy defense secretary in the U.S. I can't remember his name. I think it was the deputy, or maybe it was the defense secretary in the Washington Times talking about this upcoming um, meeting between Putin and and Obama. Um, he made reference to the the interviewer asked him if uh, if there would be any kind of come down on. Western pressure on Russia over Ukraine, etc., blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, no, I don't think so. And he made reference <coughs> to the international community. He said the international community has condemned Russia. <coughs> and they use this term all the time, the international community. Uh, but you're really talking about uh, Europe and America and Canada and Australia. That's about it. That's the international community, apparently. And that's uh, it's probably about <coughs> maybe... 30% of the world's population and about the same amount of its land mass, but that is the international community. And these people have no problem actually saying international community as if this is the whole world. These more people, than, more than one a, nation? Yeah, these people leave out two-thirds of the world, land mass and population, when they talk about the international community because they see themselves. This gives you a really interesting insight into their, into their mindset that we rule the world. We are where it's at in this world. The rest of the world doesn't really matter. When we do things, that's what matters. 
And when we do things, everybody must sit up and listen. And that's just, <clears throat> I mean, you're doomed to, you're heading for a really kind of a a painful fall eventually. Uh, the hubris of empire. When you continue with that kind of attitude, you know, and these people can't see it, you know, they're so in their own delusion, they cannot see what they're doing, you know, because they have so much trumped up belief in themselves, which is basically unfounded. Yeah. What got me along those lines was the recent discussion in the news about the UN and the Russian veto mm. is a horrible thing mm. because um, it might force nations like the United States to start ignoring the UN. Right. Because uh, apparently, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they might have to shop around for alternative. That was the the woman that that I love to hate. She's not really a woman. She's she's some kind of creature her and she's officially of Irish descent and her surname is an Irish surname power but then I really really don't like that woman because um, mm-hmm. we've, we've shunned her from the tribe oh she's been totally I mean she's I'm actually I put her on my list of sanctioned people who can't come to Ireland <laughs> uh, good she's, she's on my she's not, she's not allowed in uh, and I'll be making if she tries to I'm going to make a citizen's arrest next time I'm there so um, but she's just she comes out with such Slimy, sneaky. There's just something about her sanctimonious, you know, path, pathological and paramoralistic nonsense. You know, and she has just she says it with such you know, such conviction and also with uh, such pathos, almost you know, as if she's so sincere. But it's pure and utter horseshit. You know, it's complete. It's provably false stuff that she says. You know, uh, and not only that, I think what called me the most is that she she's the one who most or, or who is perhaps the best at accusing Russia and anyone else of doing exactly mm-hmm. what the US does other US uh, politician types uh, when they do that they couch it and maybe they're a bit more vague about it they're not too explicit but she ex- really explicitly accuses someone else of exactly what she and her ilk in Washington can can be shown to be doing and have done all all the time, and that's what really annoys me about her. And um, yes, yeah, so this thing about um, about the UN, uh, you know, if Russia continues using its veto to stop America, you know, rampaging around the world, then you know, some countries, i.e., America and anybody that can drag along with it, will ignore or reject the UN as a as a mediating body in the world. Uh, and she says, Stark, we may we may get to the point where we will do that. But, I mean, the whole world knows Iraq. in Iraq in 2003 that the U.S. government completely... Actually, not only did they ignore the U.N., they went to the U.N., asked the U.N. to agree with them to allow them to invade Iraq. The U.N. said, no, that would be wrong. And they said, well, screw you, we're going to do it anyway. So it's not only that they just uh, they, they, they decided not to go to the U.N., they went to the U.N. and then completely rejected the U.N.'s judgment and went ahead and did it anyway. And they see his gall to stand up and accuse Russia for using its veto to stop the U.S. from doing that kind of thing they did in Iraq, that if Russia continues to do that, that they would then stop using the U.N., even though they stopped using the U.N. or caring about the U.N. or considering the U.N. as anything worth anything a long time ago. It's just, I mean, I just want to, you know, hit her with a fish or something. Well... She also ignores the fact that in the past 20 years or so, it's the U.S. that has used their veto more times than Russia, Mm -hmm. specifically in regards to Israel. Right. And 
So it's only been in the last several years that Russia has started using the veto. I mean, they went along with the Libya resolution, but the Libya resolution was totally um, creatively uh, put into practice. So really what happened in Libya had nothing to do with uh, the actual resolution that was passed that, that Russia didn't use its veto on. Mm -hmm. But the, the vetoes that they've been using have been specifically in regards to Ukraine and Syria. And these are two areas where if the UN is a body that, uh, that can do any good, I mean, then the veto should have been used in these cases. I mean, that's, that's what it should be there for. So in these examples, this, the veto is a good thing. And yet, um, so well, at least in practice, in theory, and in practice in these cases, but but um, for the U.S., for people like Samantha Power, they just want a rubber stamp to do whatever they want to do. And for them, an organization like the UN should be there just to yeah. Just, How yeah. dare they not agree with what we want to do? How yeah. dare they question our manifest destiny? This is what we want to do. And you're saying no, so obviously we're just going to have to ignore you, and you know that's that's not cool. So why are you doing that? Like, why can't you just say yes? But she also said something recently in an interview uh, from just last week. She was talking to some talking head in the U.S. media, and she was talking about Syria, and she actually accused, if I remember correctly, she was accusing Russia again of effectively creating ISIS or being responsible yeah. for ISIS. She she more or less came out and said that. Uh, Ultimately, the blame lay with Russia for ISIS because uh, it had been supporting the uh, Assad government, and the Assad government, because it was so evil, uh, created the conditions to uh, allow ISIS to come in. And that again is just so com so completely twisted and turned on its head. I mean, uh, the entire world knows. Apparently, not, apparently, Samantha Power doesn't know, but even people in the uh, in her own government and uh, in, in American intelligence agencies know. And in the media as well, the media that she was speaking to know that uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the U.S. all supported the groups that kind of became Al-Qaeda or basically gave their weapons and their money to, uh, sorry, ISIS. No, you see, you're not seeing it, Joe. I'm not seeing what? You see, Assad was bad. And so because Assad was bad, that means that we, you know, we being the West, had to train all these terrorists to go in there and take them out. Right. So anyone that supports Assad is creating and maintaining the conditions that were ne that made the funding of these terrorists um, needed. Mm. So therefore, they are responsible because Assad was responsible. Anyone that you see, no. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me again. No, don't bother. Actually, because I think my it, brains it start leaking at my ear. Um, Nine eleven happened, and Dick Cheney got up on meet the press or something and the gloves came off and he used that phrase it's time for the gloves to come off we may have to do some dirty things but you got to get dirty when you're dealing with and this is the the whole this is where the pathos it gets confusing do they really believe their own bullshit or are they simply consciously sort of like simply there's nothing simple about it are they aware that what they're doing it's hypocritical and yeah. a lie. Yeah. And the, no. tone, the tone has been set. That's for, why they're insane. That's why ultimately yeah. when you consider that these people are insane because they don't realize that. They think they're telling the truth. They think they're fighting for uh, freedom and democracy. But the problem is freedom and democracy for them has, has long ago become conflated with their own personal self-interest. Self 
uh, freedom and democracy are two words that uh, sound good to people, make people feel good because they have good, positive connotations. Uh, that becomes conflated in their kind of old brain, in their reptilian brain, with uh, what makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. And what them, makes them feel good is uh, them being in positions of power, them getting to uh, lord it over other people and uh, command armies and enrich themselves. So that's why, that's why you get, uh, when you have a fundamentally predatory nature, uh, like these people, most of these people have, they're fundamentally predators behind the mask, uh, what makes a predator feel good is eating other people. And they 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 join that up with feel-good uh, words because uh, at that level in their in their minds, it's, it's all the same. It's all feel for freedom, democracy, joy, hearts and minds, love, flowers, uh, you know, eat people, mm, taste good, yeah, kill everybody, oh, that feels great, uh, freedom and democracy. That's kind of what they say and that's what, they, that's what their brain is telling them. Uh, they're, they're kind of old brain, the unconscious part of the brain is telling them and it gets then, you know, uh, translated into a load of spittle-flecked, hysterical hubris horseshit at the UN or something, you know, that that confuses people, you know. Uh, Indeed. And this is why the best that we say people can hope for, the best to hope for is that this will become more and more apparent. They'll make more and more extreme discrepancies between the obvious reality staring everyone in the face and the ideological projection put over it by these U.S. political yeah. types. Here's another little classic. Um, Xi Jinping, leader of China, is also in the U.S. right mm-hmm. now, and he's apparently touring the West Coast, and then he's going to Washington for a state dinner with Obama. And the talking heads are all telling us, you know, what, what Obama's going to be saying to Xi to... to uh, put him in his place I mean really the most they're coming up with is China's human rights record but the other thing that the real concern they have is uh, how to rein back China and its crashing stock markets from hurting the way that we've set things up and it works for us so they're setting people up for China taking the blame for what's to come, an economic crash coming from Wall Street, and their their solutions being proffered are, hmm, maybe we can impose financial financial sanctions on China. Mm. Sanctions, sanctions. Oh my God, they're going to bring up sanctions again this time in China. They're going to they're going to bring up sanctions now when Xi is in Washington. Now contrast that with what Hillary Clinton said years ago. It came out in, in one of those WikiLeaks cables. Um, she was speaking to some diplomat, uh, I guess a U.S. one, and she's asking him, apparently sincerely, uh, she was she had a meeting in China coming up, and she's wondering what to bring to the table, blah, 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 and she, and she says, hmm, how do we discipline, or how does one discipline one's banker? The understanding being that China is effectively the banker, bankrolling the United States and everything it does. Because this entire, most well, substantial portion of its debt is owned by held by China. Mm-hmm. Now Xi is in Washington, and we're going to toss out the idea of imposing financial sanctions on I China think that, to bring it in line. I think that those, those ideas of sanctions, will be, what, will we, what, will, what will our great president, our great freedom-loving, benevolent president who is the... 
you know, the bringer of all good things to all people forever and ever. Amen. Uh, what will he say to this other president of this Chinese nation and stuff who is obviously not as good as us? Well, he'll have to say, he'll have to smack him a little bit. He'll have to lord it over him. He'll have to make him feel a bit less than, or a good bit less than America and pump America up and but all that kind of stuff in the media that you hear, like and sanctions, yes, we should sm- we should spank him. Maybe he'll put him over a chair and spank him on the bottom and say this is very bad because you're not following democratic principles as established by America and you don't like freedom as much as we do. Uh, well, nobody can like freedom as much as we do. But anyway, you're not trying hard enough. So, but all of that's talked about. It's just drivel in the media to perpetuate this idea that has infected American minds. And they're trying to promote it as well and continue the infection, the spread of the infection to consolidate it in American minds that America is this wonderful nation that is uh, you know, beyond reproach. Uh, and that's what the media does. The media serves the purpose of keeping the American people convinced of the greatness of America. And the more America descends into the cesspit, the more the propaganda aimed at the American people and all the people in the world, whoever listen, uh, in the opposite direction, that it's the epitome of, of greatness and, and, and wonderfulness. And it's just it's hysterical, you know, uh, but it's disturbing at the same time because you realize you're looking at pathology, really. You're looking at a disturbed mental state, you know, a, a mental disorder of some description. And and that's who's running the world, supposedly, you know. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, There's something remarkably... Prescient, or I don't know what the word is, symbolic in the fact that this is the 70th anniversary of the United States General Assembly. And the world is at this crossroads. And I, I was surprised that Putin is going to bother going to the U.S. I mean, he hasn't been there in 10 years. Uh, I don't blame him. Um, surprised because here you have both the two Eurasian powers, the leaders of both countries, in a sense, validating the world order that's existed for 70 years, the mm. U.S.-led one, mm. by turning up to speak at this big event. Yeah, but that's why Putin, Putin plays the game. You know, he's not, he's not a, he doesn't, you know, what do they call it in, in Australia, shirt front. He doesn't shirt front people like the Australian, prime, a former Australian prime minister who was booted out recently, thank God, what an idiot, but I think the next one's just as bad. But anyway, uh, he doesn't shirt from anybody. He doesn't like get in anybody's face. He, he's very polite. He's a diplomat, and he and he works it very well. And he knows how to how to play the game and and not jerk anybody's chain if he doesn't have to, you know. And especially on a forum like the UN, he'll go and he'll say his piece. But behind it is hard facts type of thing. He doesn't bring bullshit and crap to the table like the US does. He 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 brings when he says something, you know that there's something behind it. That he's not just you know, talking through his hat. Um, but it's interesting, you know, this the Chinese Premier Jing uh, Jinping. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is, uh, he's, being, he's getting a state dinner with all the goodies, you know, and lamb and, you know, little things made by the slaves down in the, in the White House uh, kitchen. And um, uh, Putin is yeah, maybe we'll talk to you. Maybe we'll not. I don't know. We'll get back to you. Um, we will meet you in a dark alley somewhere or something. And maybe have a few words. But Xi Jinping gets the full treatment, you know. But 
that's it's, it's a pathetic, desperate attempt by the Americans uh, to think they can court the Chinese. You know, when there's a several year, probably ten year history or more of China and Russia making very clear that they are uh, kind of, uh, at least in terms uh, as regards to the U.S., they're on the same side against the eye to eye there against the U.S. Yeah. And but the Americans think they can, you know, a nice dinner and a bottle of wine and some maybe some soft music or something, and and Xi Jinping will uh, come around or something. You know, uh, it's totally delusional, you know. But maybe it's done for effect. You know, they're trying to convince people that China is still on our side, but they're not obviously on your side. I mean, I don't know. It's just the whole thing's bizarre yeah. and, and pathetic at the well, same it, time. It's it's over that that world order where the international financial institutions set up during Bretton Woods discussions, the Bretton Woods system, the UN formed in San Francisco, the IMF, Washington, D.C., that system is finished. I mean, China has already set up a parallel system. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of an intermediary as well at another more political level in the form of BRICS. It's it's gone. It's already done. (laughs) You just want to shake some of these people in Washington and say, look, just acknowledge it. You can come out of this doing okay, mm. but as it's going, you're 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 doomed, and well, you're doomed, and you're going to bring all of us down with you. Yeah, which so is a really tragic thing. So what else is going on uh, in the world? There's a, I suppose there's mentionable something mentionable on the Israeli front. Uh, the Israelis are have given a display in the past week of their continuing uh, pathology that has been there for. Uh, the Israeli government has been there for forever, really. You know, they, as people probably know, they shot an 18-year-old girl. Israeli soldiers did a checkpoint. Um, they made up some story afterwards that she had a knife and tried to stab one of the soldiers, but she apparently didn't. They just apparently, because she wasn't, she wouldn't remove her veil. So I think fly, I think yeah. one of them just shot her mm-hmm. ten times and then left her to die and wouldn't let paramedics come in. That's yeah. The, she was, that's she the, was lying there for like half an hour. Right. That's the nature of the state of Israel. Always has been and the people who run it. Um, and they've also, they've officially passed a law, the Israelis, the Israeli government has passed a law that permits the use of live ammo to uh, civilian threat stone throwers. Mm-hmm. So those Palestinian kids who throw stones at um, at Israeli occupying forces who come and, you know, imprison their fathers and their brothers and their well, they brothers and sisters, they, uh, they, 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 previously they've... Uh, They've just been responded to with uh, maybe plastic-coated bullets or um, rubber bullets of some description or uh, tear gas and that kind of thing. But now they can shoot them. Yeah. That's basically a carte blanche to uh, to murder Palestinian children for throwing stones at Israeli soldiers who are occupying their their their, their, their well, land. And this is just in in Jerusalem. The IDF has had those powers. In the in the West Bank already, so it's just this new law. They're just they're just expanding the expanding the the legitimate targets that they can do this on, mm. you know, in their words. But um, so it was just about a week or so ago that the well, first Netanyahu had proposed it, and then it has it's just gone through. And but there's also um, sentencing changes as well. So for example, a four year minimum sentence up to something like twenty years for for throwing stones. Or Molotov cocktails, um, the families of the stone throwers can be fined up to twenty six thousand um, dollars, 
and so just right after this law was um, first proposed and then kind of initially approved um, conveniently, um, there was uh, an incident where an Israeli policeman was shot. Three others were earned, were injured after being hit hit with stones. And this is in Jerusalem because there's been a a whole you know a whole thing going on there. The and policeman was shot with stones. Well, one policeman. Well, no, three others were injured with stones, and I guess one policeman was shot. Well, you know, who knows what really went on, but yeah, okay. So three guys were injured, and apparently one was shot. And 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 moving over to the U.S., we have uh, continued. Uh, the, the U.S. police are continuing in the in the same vein of um, being a bunch of trigger happy um, thugs who just shoot first and ask questions later. There are two stories this week. Uh, one guy in a wheelchair who um, apparently didn't have a gun, um, but for some reason. It's still unclear, but he was in a wheelchair, and they shot him uh, seven or eight times. They shot him initially, and they said, raise your hands, raise your hands. Right, they shot him, and they said, raise your hands. from his chest, and then they riddled him to death, and he fell out of his chair. And there was another guy who, um, same situation, sort of, he was in a wheelchair, but he had had been called by a pharmacist, by by a chemist, where he had tried to get um, uh, drugs from the chemist without a prescription. So she called the police. Bad idea. The uh, police arrived. The guy uh, pointed his fingers at the police in the shape of a gun. So they shot him dead. Uh, they shot him. Well, they shot him once in, in, in the same way that uh, the guy in the wheelchair. And then they were shouting at him to to show me your hands. Show me your hands after he was after he'd been shot. And uh, so he didn't show his hands. So they shot him some more. And all he did was point his fingers in a gun passion at the police. So apparently US cops don't know the difference. Some of them don't know the difference between fingers and a gun. Well, it strikes me that they're trained that way because the same thing happened with the guy in the wheelchair. You can see one cop, he's shouting at him to raise his hands, raise his hands. Show me your gun, I think he, he says. And then the cop goes to hide behind a car as if to say, this is the five seconds we've been trained to allow the target sorry, suspect, mm. to do what he's told. If the five seconds are up, oh, he steps out back in front of the car, riddles him with bullets. Mm. It suggests a training procedure. And you do you do hear, I mean, there's other stories where, not other incidents, but there are stories going around about the training these guys receive mm. um, a lot from of former military tribes. Following on from our... Shoot to kill. Well, following on from our, what we just said previously, a lot of them have had training in Israel mm-hmm. or by Israeli police and military personnel. So if you're wondering where that kind of thing is coming from, it's probably, to some extent, uh, due to their training by Israelis. Um, Yeah. It's almost as if it's just a a sick joke, like the way they're trained. So you shoot someone, and then you tell them to put their hands up. I know, yeah. It's like it's it's deliberate. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, now put your hands up. Oh, you can't do it? Really? Okay, I'm going to shoot you again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's, schoolyard bully taken to the extreme. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, the other person in New York this week that we haven't mentioned is uh, is El Papa, the Pope of the, the Holy Pope? See, El, El Francisco El Magnifico, see, si. uh, who brought uh, brought Congress to their feet 
in a standing ovation as soon as he said, Land of the Free and Home of the Brave. He doesn't speak a lot of English, but he was able to get that out. He said, well, thank you for welcoming me or inviting me to come here to the land of the free and home of the brave. And as soon as he said that, the whole place got up and started clapping and cheering wildly. Some of them tore, tore their clothes off and rolled around on the ground together um, just in, in pure ecstasy. Um, that's what Americans do when you say things like that to them. Um, well, I mean, Amer- particularly American politicians. Okay. But um, he uh, he brought, uh, what's the guy's name, Bromer or... Bonner, Bonner, whatever his name is, this is Senator, no? Senator, Beaner, I don't know, Boehner. no, Boehner. He brought him to tears. You've probably seen the video. He, this guy's a Catholic, <laughs> so the sight of the Pope beside him. Just, I mean, when you have people like that who are just so obviously have some kind of fundamentalist bent, what's he doing in politics? He's he's a nut job. You know what I mean? It's because you're standing beside the Pope. I mean, I mean, I can understand if my 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 granny or my uh, devout Catholic or whatever would would shed a tear. Uh, if she got to stand beside the Pope, you know, because she's a devout Catholic. And Can you imagine the media reports if Putin is caught crying his eyes out next to the head of the Orthodox Church in Russia? <gasps> Russia's going back to theocracy. Yeah. So this is what, what happens. Yeah, it's it's pretty sad. Um, and other than that, well, there's been another, You probably most people know about the Mecca, Mecca business. It's not um, strange. Happened on a few occasions in the past, but 700, 750, something like that. Pilgrims all just decided to, you know, check out. Check. I don't know. I mean, that's talking about. I mean, it follows, well, follows on from fundamentalism. It follows on from our comment about this senator in the U.S. I mean, just they, they believe they were stoning the devil. Well, they were happened. heading towards that. Okay. A situation where there's these kind of walls set up where you can throw stones at the wall and. Apparently that's like stoning the devil. Doesn't make any sense, but there you go. Symbolic, whatever. Um, you should just stay at home and throw a stone at a wall, no? But anyway, apparently doing things like that in groups. Go to the Israeli border and throw stones. Yeah. Oh well. No, you better not be shot. But so they all tried to just rush up this uh, towards a bridge or whatever, and there was a crush. And I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, obviously you're talking about an awful lot of people there, all crammed into a small space. But it's hard to imagine how in a kind of stampede like that, 717 or 720 people could be killed. Mm-hmm. I know. You're talking about that's... They get like 100,000 a day and 2 million over 10 days or something. Yeah. It's, and the Saudis it's love it, you know. It's baking hot. Um, the Saudis love that kind of thing, you know. It puts them at the center of the Arab world, like, even even though the Saudis are just a bunch of, you know, uh, pseudo, pseudo-Muslims. Uh just, just letting on, just pretending to keep everybody happy. But I'm sure they're very happy that they got there. I wonder. I was trying to look at it to see if there was some kind of gerrymandering of the Saudi, Saudi uh, nation when it was created for the this bunch, this bunch of uh, desert, desert uh, would-be royals who formed the Saudi. Well, all of these nations were. Created. They were created, but I'm wondering if it was if it was created. The borders were created specifically at the time to include uh, Mecca. Uh, so that it would be the center of the Muslim world, where all Muslims would 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 supposedly have to come once in their lifetime to pay their dues. Um, I think you don't have to, you don't <coughs> have to wonder. Well, yeah. Saudi, I have um, a statistic from ten years ago by the British researcher Mark Curtis. Um, the Saudis spent fifty billion dollars building mosques and madrasas, some of which were where the terrorists, the Mujahideen mm-hmm. in yeah. Afghanistan. 
uh, $50 billion worth on an education, mm. a Muslim, their brand mm. of Islamic education all over the Wahhabi- Muslim world. Wahhabism. Yeah. Which is basically what ISIL are all about. So it's no stranger. It's not strange that ISIL is, uh, is largely funded and promoted by the, by the Saudis, you know. Indeed. Their but name, Islamic State, the Islamic State is Saudi Arabia. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, maybe this is an omen. Another, I mean, there was that Hajj incident, there was a crane incident on 9-11, yeah, September 11. Fire a few days after that. A fire broke out. before, yeah. And there was another little thing. A, a Saudi is dallying along some posh street in Mecca, I think. When I say posh, I mean, they have really, really Western, mm-hmm. modern city infrastructure. But uh, the top of the skyscraper... An entire sheet of glass just blows mm-hmm. off in the wind and it just misses him. I, I'm not pointing that out to mock the guy because he was nearly killed, but it was just another little thing in this sequence of hints, I think, of the billboard coming down in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. It can't happen sooner. Enough, soon enough. And, and what else is going on? Hmm... There's um, on the weather front anything. Well, yeah, there's a lot of floods, uh, tornado in the UK, um, tornado in France, um, floods in Greece and Turkey. Uh, same, same old, same old. Basically, it's going to be an interesting winter. But the Catalonians are going for uh, going for independence. Going 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 to the polls today in uh, Wait. a regional election. But that's part of elections across Spain, though, right? No. This is just... Uh, I don't I don't think so. Uh, because they... Oh, sorry. They not, went to have an re- independence oh, vote, it was, it was, and it was next last year. No? I know, but they're having... An, uh, that was the, first, the, the one from yeah, 2012, was it? No, two, a couple of years ago, whatever. But uh, today, Sunday, they're uh, going to... They've been going to the polls, the polls are, are open, uh, uh, for basically a vote for a regional election. It's kind of, it's, it's built as a quasi-referendum on independence, but it's, what they're saying is, what the Catalonian... Spain will never recognise it. What so. the Catalonian authorities are saying is, as a result of this poll today, if there's a majority who want uh, to vote for the independence party, basically, they will... Um, that they're going to then have another. They're going to. I don't know what they, they haven't been explicit, but they may even declare independence. Basically, they're getting another commitment from the Catalonian people that they want to be separate from Spain. And if they get it today, then as far as they're concerned, it's a done deal. But Madrid will just say, yeah, whatever. Madrid's saying all sorts of stuff. The, the, I mean, it's not so simple. They can't just declare independence if they want. I mean, okay, what, are they yeah. do? what are they going to do? Invade? I mean, you can say you're not allowed to do that, but if you're not going to do anything about it, well, we'll just go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, but they're using all sorts of silly things. <laughs> the football team, Barcelona football team, won't be allowed to play in the European Cup and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, trying to hit people, hit Barcelona's where, they're, where it hurts, you know, right. in, their, in their sports addiction, you know. So there might be a new country next week. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Tomorrow. We'll go down there and, uh, well, maybe. Eventually, one day, or not. Uh, but the ice age might come this winter, so uh, 
it's coming. You know, it's it's it's. The Ice Age is uh, scheduled for this winter, so uh, I thought it was interesting. Go back to something China-related. That while she was in Washington with Obama, George Osborne went from London to meet the Chinese Premier, the Prime Minister, in Xinjiang in Western China. Talk investment and money and infrastructural projects in Western China. What is a British Chancellor there? finance minister doing in western China when all this is going on is this Britain going it alone from the US or the fact that this happened together suggests something working through both of them I don't know who knows Uh, not that anyone in Britain is really paying attention because the story of the week there is all about a certain experience <laughs> of Prime Minister Cameron. Mm. Please call me Dave. Mm. If somebody dished the dirt on him yeah. in a big way. Piggy. That's, uh, that's yeah. the sound of a pig. Yeah, that's one of his uh, one of his former friends has been dishing the dirt in a in a kind of serialized kind of set of articles in the Daily Mail, I think, where they're I don't know why there's some infighting going on there. But then when that, when that kind of thing happens, you know that there's more behind it. I don't know what's going on in British politics in that respect. Um, after Corbyn becoming the leader of the opposition, and it seems now somebody in Cameron's own party effectively has, has the knives out for him. So uh, I, I don't know. Like we say, like we often say, some things just have to be put down to uh, the wheels coming off the whole thing and people just losing the plot and, you know, doing things for really silly reasons. Increasingly, you'll see more, increasingly, you'll see stupid things being done that don't really have any other explanation other than pure stupidity, uh, or maybe driven by some kind of desperation to to, to get what they want, you know. But uh, it seems increasingly rational actions and thoughts and stuff are going out the window in terms of... Uh, State policy and, and and foreign policy and yeah. international geopolitics—it's all just like knee-jerk reactions to things, Indeed. you know. Well, with regards to Britain, it's basically done. In 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 according to the basis allegedly of Western democracies, it's finished. It's already finished. The Scots voted independence. The UK, as such, while still there on paper, it no longer exists. Mm. These people are in have actually moved into an unreality where they continue to talk about British interests, British values, yeah. and conduct wars on behalf of a British population that has been severed. Well, they're very much like the Americans in that respect. Yeah, you know? they've well, moved they're... into a castle they built in the sky. Yeah, they're the same kind of ilk. They're the same genetics, even as the American uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in power. W-A-S-P-S-I-P. Waspip. Anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, we will be back next week with another show. So uh, until then, thanks to our chatters and uh, our listeners. And um, have a good evening. And thanks to Dimitri Babich once again. Yes. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you. Alrighty. Good night, everyone. See you next week. Take care.